morning. Hope you've enjoyed our time singing praise to our God. He is awesome, isn't he? Amen. We have, as Pastor Ethan mentioned, Ethan, uh, sorry, Awana is going to be starting up here uh, next Sunday. We've been trying to figure out how to do Awana and Sunday school and how to get some of the stuff back rolling. Uh, just because the way things are, we're trying to push back. Hopefully, Lord willing, we'll be able to do Sunday school in, in October, trying to start maybe after homecoming. That's the plan, Lord willing, to see how things go. There's kind of a caveat right now. I'm just not sure. But hopefully, we can get to that point, get back to things back to normal. Open your Bibles, if you will, to 1 Timothy 1. If you're new here or first time or first time in a long time, we're studying through the pastoral epistles. We're starting off in 1 Timothy. So two weeks ago, we had an overview. Last week, went through chapter 1, 1 through 11. Today, we'll look at chapter 1, verses 12 through 18. Last week, we saw in verse 1 through 11, Paul warned Timothy about false teaching that had already infiltrated the church. Timothy was charged to root out these teachers. We saw, who else, saw also that the law that God gave to his people is good. If it's used, he says in verse 8, lawfully. And then we also saw that we don't use it lawfully. We're a mess. We get stuff wrong all the time, and the Bible finds that we are all guilty. So it's just, just doom and gloom. Isn't there any good news? And Paul's going to say yes. And good news is going to start coming here in verses 12 and on. And what's the good news? The good news is that Jesus saves that's the good news we all are guilty right we asked last week how many have jaywalked we all raised our hand how many went over the speed limit we break our governmental laws all the time we break god's laws all the time but in our government system we have incremental damage from a fine to prison time in god's law guilty is guilty and that's it it's not, well, you're sort of guilty, or you did the lesser crime. They are all on the same level. We're all equally guilty before God. But the good news is that Jesus saves. He saves. Who does Jesus save? Why does Jesus save? Can Jesus save you? Can he save me? I appreciate that vote of confidence. At least somebody's awake. Can he save me? Can he save the richest, the poorest, the coolest, the biggest, the smallest, the king, the pauper, the celeb, the no-name? Can he save the winner of the Nobel Peace Prize, the person rotting in a jail cell? Who can he save? Is there a limit to who he can save, what he can do? So first, let's look at who Jesus saves. Look at verses 12 through 15. Paul says, I thank him who has given me strength. Well, who's given you strength, Paul? Christ Jesus, our Lord. Because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. Though formerly, I, Paul, was a blasphemer, a persecutor, I was an insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Of who I am the foremost, 
So let's start with verse 15 and work our way back up. Look again, who did Jesus save according to verse 15? He says it saves sinners, but he starts off with the phrase to warm your heart. This saying is trust, trustworthy. He uses that phrase three times in this book. Here in 115, in 3.1, and in 4.9. This saying is trustworthy. This is something you can believe. Not only is it trustworthy, but he says it's also deserving of full acceptance. This is something you should be taking in hook, line, and sinker. It's something you should be swallowing whole. What, Paul, should we be swallowing? That Jesus, verse 15, came into the world to save sinners, of who I am the foremost. So again, who does Jesus save? He saves sinners. Who is a sinner? Anyone, anyone, as we saw last week, who has broken God's law. Anyone who has broken God's law. Ever lied? Ever stolen? Ever been jealous and wanted something somebody else had? Ever disobeyed your parents? Guilty. 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 And that's it. Those are the people Jesus came to save. Scripture tells us in Romans 3.23, all have sinned and have fallen short of the glory of God. And there's good news, though, even though we are all sinners, that's who Jesus came to save. If, however, you find yourself here, so if you're sitting here right now, everyone look at me, if you're sitting here right now, I want you to understand this, and you find that you've done no wrong ever in your life, you are the perfect human being, let me, let me state this for you. Jesus did not come to save you. And that makes sense, doesn't it? Jesus doesn't need to save perfect people. Because they're already perfect. What's the problem, though? Do you see any perfect people around? Don't look now. When you look in the mirror, you're perfect. Only one has come and lived on this earth and has been perfect. That is is Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who, as we see in this verse, came into this world. Maybe he existed before. He came into this world. And he came to save sinners. So if you, again, you sit here, I'm perfect, I don't need, I mean, I've never made a mistake, then this is not for you. But I think if you're being honest, you'll recognize, like all of us, we've all messed up. We've all sinned. And as bad as that news is, good news is that's exactly who Jesus came to save. You're now in the right category for salvation. You are ripe for the picking. He came to save sinners. He came to save sinners. How do we know, though, that Jesus can save any sinner? What about really, really bad people? Think of someone in history. It's like, they're off the charts bad. Could Jesus save them? Think of what's going on in our world right now. Think of what's going on in Afghanistan. The Taliban hunting down allies of the United States and hunting down Christians and trying to behead them. Could Jesus save those 
somebody like a Taliban who's trying to, can he save somebody from the Taliban who's currently hunting down Christians and trying to execute them? Would his grace and his mercy be enough for them? Is there a limit to what he can do? What's the answer? Look again at verse 15. This is a trustworthy saying. It's deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And Paul says with this little statement, of whom I am the foremost. Paul says he's the worst sinner. That if there were Olympics, he's winning the gold when it comes to sinners. And you're like, you know, is this really reality? Is this just kind of Paul deprecating humor, self-deprecating humor, just like, you know, I'm really bad. And everyone's like, no, you're not, Paul. And he's like, well, yes, I am. No, you're not. Okay, I'm not. Is, that, is this what he's talking about? Because you, you think of the Apostle Paul, you're going, there's no way that he's worse of a sinner than I am. Because, again, we think degrees. But there's no way. Remember how I asked you if God could save someone like the Taliban that would hunt down Christians and kill them? Do you remember what Paul did before he came to Jesus in Acts 9, which Miss Rachel read today? Hunted down Christians and killed them for religious purposes. Holy jihad. we keep learning about what Paul did. It's bad. It's awful what he would do. And Paul says, I, I, I am the worst. And I'll go on to explain how. But what was Paul before he came to Christ? Look at verse 13. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, a persecutor, an insolent opponent. But even somebody this bad, he says, verse 13, but I received mercy because I'd acted ignorant in unbelief. And the grace of the Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Man, I wish I could spend a week, two weeks, three weeks, just on these two verses, because they're full, so chock full of good stuff. But walk away with the fact that Paul was the bad guy. And it's true, however, that he was acting, as he says, ignorant and in unbelief, that he did not realize that Jesus was the Messiah, the Son of God. This is not excuse his sin. Paul wrote in Romans 1 that we are all without excuse. But Paul was the one hunting down Christians and was having them killed. In Acts 26, 11, uh, we hear that Paul would capture prisoners and would try to get them to blaspheme the name of Jesus as part of his capture. That they would not blaspheme the name of Jesus. And what would he do to people like Stephen? We're going to stone him. We're going to kill him. So it's not like God looked down from heaven and saw the Apostle Paul, formerly Saul, as Miss Rachel pointed out, thankfully, and said, what a winner. This is the guy. Look at all the good he's doing. What did Jesus say to Paul when he met him on the road? Saul, why are you persecuting me? I identify with my people. You're persecuting me. And what does Jesus give him? Grace. Mercy. <gasps> Overflowing. Paul, why are you persecuting me? Who are you, Lord? I'm Jesus. You would think, bam, strike him dead. He deserves no mercy 
He deserves no grace. And what does God do instead? Pours it out. I know what you're doing. I know who you are. But my grace is deeper. My mercy is greater. It can cover it all. It can remove it all. I can make you mine. That is our God. Who can he save? Me. Who can he save? You. The worst. That's who he can save. And all God's people say, Amen. Amen. We see what Paul was. And in spite of what he was, God saved him. Even though he was a persecutor, God gave him, as verse 12 says, God gave him strength and judged him faithful and appointed Paul into his service. So we have seen who Jesus saves. He saves sinners. Any sinner can be saved. Even the worst the world has to offer. But why? Why would Jesus save sinners? Look at verse 16. But I receive mercy for this reason, that in, me, that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. To the king of the ages, immortal and invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Why does Jesus save sinners? Look again at verse 16. But I receive mercy for this reason, that in me, as a foremost, Jesus might display his perfect patience. And so first it starts off as first of three parts. Why does Jesus save first? To display his perfect patience. One writer said of this, Paul sees himself as a prototype of all hostile, sinful rebels against God, whom God tolerates while patiently waiting for their conversion. Paul knew Jesus was patient with him. What about other people in the Bible? Can you think of some other apostles, like Peter? Did Peter know that Jesus was patient? How many times does Peter, and perhaps you and I, for certain me, for me, how many times do we have to stick our foot in our mouth and realize God still is patient? Well, Peter recognized God was patient. How many people in the Bible did Jesus turn around to and say, get behind me, Satan, and he was speaking to you, Peter? When Jesus turns and nicknames you Satan, that's not a good, that's not a good nickname. That's not something you want. And yet, what does Peter write in 2 Peter 3, 9? The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you. Why? Not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. God is patient. He's perfectly patient. Ever wonder why God doesn't strike humans dead after their first sin? How long would a toddler last? If you're not sure, sign up for nursery. Because you're going to find out. Nobody teaches these kids to sin. Put one ball in a room full of toddlers. Watch them share naturally. And you understood that was sarcastic, didn't you? Because you've seen toddlers. 
put one piece of cake in the break room for the office. It's, it's, it's a name. We choose wrong from the beginning. So why doesn't God just strike us dead on the first sin, the second sin, the third sin, the hundredth sin, the thousandth sin? Why does he wait and wait and wait and wait? Why is he so patient? He's so patient so that you might return and repent. He's patient so you would come home. perfectly patient. We sang about that today, right? I mean, good, good father, he's perfect in all his ways. One of those ways is his patience towards me, towards you. Christian, the day that you accepted Christ as your Savior, you became a demonstration to the world of the patience of God. The fact that he allowed you to live until that day when you accepted him as your Savior. He allowed all those sins to go on and he still allowed you to have his grace and mercy. You become an example to the world God is patient. God is patient. And that leads us to the second part of why God saves. Not only does he demonstrate his perfect patience, but also, at the end of verse 16, he says, as an example to those who are to believe in him for eternal life. So not only can the salvation of a soul lead to displaying God's amazing patience, but also the saving of souls can be an example to others that can help them believe in the same good news. We are trophies of grace and mercy that God shows off to the world. Look, look at what I can do with them. He can save that person. He can change their life in that way. He was patient that long. I got to meet this guy. That's why Paul says, he says that by my life changed. By God saving me and making me his own, he displayed his perfect patience to the world, but he also set me up as an example so everyone could look and see, oh my word, how is this possible? Who are you and what have you done with Bob? You've completely changed. I can't believe it. This is true in Paul's life. Should it not also be true in our lives, that if you go back to your high school reunion, people go, what happened? Jesus. Jesus. He changed everything. You go back to a family reunion, you're so different now. What's going on? If people have never noticed a change, There's some hard questions we got to ask. Parents recognize, you know, for some of you that, are, that accepted Jesus as your Savior, like, well, what big change was, it, was there in my life? Ask your parents, because they know. We see it even in our own kids' lives. See change. It's supernatural. Shouldn't people see? Shouldn't we be trophies of grace and mercy? Shouldn't they understand God's patience when they look at us? Part of that's by letting them know who we are. We're sinners. 
and being honest and not self-righteous, pugnacious people. And let him know, hey, to be honest with you, I, I, I mess up all the time. But God is kind. He's patient. He's loving. He's caring. Jesus saves to show the world his amazing patience. He saves to use us as trophies of grace and mercy to amaze the world and encourage them to believe in the good news. And the third reason Jesus saves is to bring himself great glory. Look at verse 17. What does Paul say in the very next verse after explaining what God has done for him to the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever, and all God's people say, amen. Today we sang these words, immortal, invisible, God only wise, taken from this text. One commentator pointed out five things about just that verse, verse five alone. Let me run through these because it's fantastic. To the king of the ages, the king first, he is the king. He is the king. There's nobody else. He is the king. He's the king of the ages beyond the limitation of time. He is the king immortal. He's incapable of dying. He's the king invisible. No one has seen God at any time. And he's the only God existing as God alone. He is God alone. As we learn in Isaiah, I am God and there is no other. There is no God beside me. I am God, period. It starts and ends with God. He gets great glory. He gets great glory in turning sinners into saints. He gets great glory from this. He can save anyone, past, present, future. He saves to show the world his amazing patience. He saves to use us as trophies of mercy and grace. And he saves to glorify himself. So once one accepts Jesus, how should they live? So how should we live once we accept Jesus as our Savior? Look at verse 18. I charge you, this I charge to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. By rejecting this, some have made shipwrecks of their faith, among whom are Arminius and Alexander, whom I've handed over to Satan that they may learn not to blaspheme. Again, we see this word charge. We talked about this two weeks ago. It's riddled throughout this book where Paul's mandating to Timothy what he ought to do. So what is Paul mandating Timothy to do here? Two things in this text. First, in verse 18, Paul's mandating that Timothy wage the good warfare. According to 1 Timothy 4.14, 2 Timothy 1.6, we see Timothy was ordained. Um, when we ordained Pastor Ethan, we pulled him up here on stage, and his uncle's here today, so we spoke for him. Thanks. Welcome. But when we had Pastor Ethan here, we ordained him on this stage, right? And we came, we laid hands on him and prayed for him in accordance with Scripture. Something was said on that day. Do you remember Pastor Ethan's day, if you were here, where he had to sit down front, and he was given a direct talking to. I had the same thing in mind when my father spoke to me and challenged me from the end of Deuteronomy, from the life of Moses. Can I remember that day like that? It was huge. And have someone, my own family member, speak to me and encourage me in the word. So those statements that were made, Paul says, this is what I'm asking you, those moments known by Paul and Timothy. We don't know what they were, these previous prophecies, whether it was just oh, something stated, something encouraged. We don't know what they were. But he's saying, recall what was said on that day. Recall what has been said about you. 
by men that are pouring their life into you, can remember these things and wage a good warfare. And for those with military background, that ought to perk your ears. For those that have read your Bible well, that also ought to perk your ears. Because what does that sound familiar to? Wage a good warfare. What does Paul say at the very end of his next letter to Timothy in 2 Timothy 4, 7? What does he say of his own life? I have fought a good fight. I finished course. I've kept the faith. Wage a good warfare. Timothy, do this now so that way when you get to the end, you can say, I did fight a good fight. I did wage a good warfare. We are on the offensive. You're on alert as if dropped behind enemy lines. We are to wage a good warfare, fight the good fight. As William Borden professed, no reserves, no retreat, no return. There's nowhere to go but forward. Onward, march. Go forward. You're on the offensive. Are we not supposed to be salt and light in a dark and dying world? Isn't salt supposed to eradicate the darkness? Isn't, sorry, isn't light supposed to eradicate the darkness? Isn't salt supposed to preserve from decay? What do we see in our country? Decay being eradicated? Salt being, I'm sorry, darkness being eradicated? You see corruption and decay being done away with? What those people need is Jesus. And what those people need is you to be Jesus in front of them. Be salt and light. Go claim ground that has been taken by our adversary. Wage the good warfare. Wake up tomorrow, put on your boots, and go for God. Go claim back some ground. Make disciples of all nations. Convert somebody that was previously an enemy of Christ just like you and I were. And you'll see a soldier join you in the ranks. We're supposed to be on the offensive. Wage the good warfare. Is that something you're doing, Christian? Or are you just, nah, I'm good. I got my house, got my stuff, got my family. You have the Savior. Eternal life. This is what you're settling for? This stuff here? There's so much more to be had, Christian. Wage the good warfare. Fight the good fight. Be salt and light in a dark and dying world. Fight on. Fighting the good fight is not the only task handed to Timothy. Second, Paul tells him in verse 19, hold faith and a good conscience. Be on the offensive, fight the good fight, while also being on guard, defending what's been entrusted to you. What is he to protect and hold on to? Faith and a good conscience. This combination is used three times in this book. Chapter 1, verse 5, which we saw last week, here in 119, and also in chapter 3, verse 9. In chapter 3, 9, he says, they must hold the mystery of faith with a clear conscience, speaking of deacons. Timothy is to hold on to and actively live out his faith. He is also to have a good conscience. What does it mean to have a good conscience? One author said, A good conscience is a state in which one's moral self-evaluation accurately registers that one has been obediently obedient to God. When your moral self-evaluation 
accurately registers that one has been obedient to God. Live by faith, Paul says to Timothy. Live by faith in such a way that when you pillow your head at night, you can do so knowing you've been obedient to God that day. When you go to sleep, you know, I've lived today for Jesus. I fought the good fight. I waged the good warfare. Now it's time to get some rest because what's my goal tomorrow? Wage the good warfare. Fight the good fight. Hold on to my faith. Make it conscious. I'm going to wage the good warfare again tomorrow. I get up the next day, I'm going to do the same thing. I try to take more ground for the kingdom. I'm going to be salt and light in a dark and dying world. What happens, though, if you don't do this? What happens if you're not waging the good warfare? What, what happens if you're not living with a good conscience? We see in verse 19 and 20, holding faith and a good conscience. By rejecting this, speaking of a good conscience, some have made shipwreck of their faith. Among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, who I've handed over to Satan that they may learn not to blaspheme. There are a few people, guys like Hymenaeus and Alexander, that have rejected good conscience and have shipwrecked their faith. How have they done this? And is Paul allowed to say what he just said at the end of this verse? That he handed people over to Satan? Should be, is that, that sounds bad. Can we do that today? Do you want to do that? that I don't, I don't know. Nope. I, so what's he doing? That seems pretty awful. But he said it. So what does he mean here? So first, we have these two clowns, Hymenaeus and Alexander. They've rejected a good conscience. They cannot go to bed at night pillowing their head knowing that they've been obedient to the Lord. They've rejected this good conscience. Hymenaeus was part, as we mentioned last week, was part of the crew bringing in false teaching. We see this in 2 Timothy 1, sorry, 2 Timothy 17. shows that he was teaching the resurrection that's already happened. Alexander could be also listed in 2 Timothy 4, 14, or perhaps he's Alexander in Acts 19, 13. Or it could just be Alexander, letter C. We don't know. What we do know is that he's also shipwrecked his faith and rejected a conscience. So Paul makes this statement because they're infiltrating the church. They're teaching incorrect things. I hand them over to Satan. What does he mean by this? So if you take notes, let me encourage you to write this text down next to that statement. 1 Corinthians 5, 5. Okay, so right next to this passage, Paul handing people over to Satan, write down 1 Corinthians 5, 5. In 1 Corinthians 5, Paul confronted the church for allowing gross immorality to take place. A man is being intimate with his stepmother, which even the world at that time, even the people of Corinth were like, yucks. This fellow kept coming to church, and the church was boasting. Like, Look at how gracious we are to allow a person to live in this sin. Paul said, what on earth are you doing? What are you doing? So Paul says in 1 Corinthians 5, 5, speaking of this person living in constant, unrepentant sin, you are to deliver this man to, and guess who? Satan, for the destruction of the flesh. Well, that seems pretty harsh. Let me finish the verse. So that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. If he wants sin for a season, let him have it, but kick him out of the church in hopes that he will return and his soul will be saved. 
So Paul says at the end of 1 Corinthians 5, 9, purge this evil person among you. So there, there's a threefold purpose to why he's saying this. The testimony of the church is at stake. The testimony of the church is at stake. We can't just have people saying, can we allow every sinner in? Yes. But once somebody says, I know Jesus, Jesus knows me, I am a Christian, and I, I live like Jesus. And then we go out and live like the world constantly, publicly, without repentance. Paul says you confront them, and if you're like, no, I can live any way I want. Oh, brother, you cannot. Sister, you cannot. We're going to have to remove you from our church, meaning you cannot take communion. I'm not going to let you do that because you're going to drink judgment on yourself, 1 Corinthians 11. We're going to try to keep that from you. And I'm to treat you, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 5, like an unbeliever. Well, how are Christians to treat unbelievers? With eggs, right? We throw, no, that's not how. With signs, big signs. We walk around downtown. How are we to treat unbelievers? How did Jesus treat unbelievers? Come to this good, good father we sang about. He loves you, but I'm a wretch. He loves you. Give them the gospel. Love them. Care for them. Do not let them take communion. Do not let them be on your membership roll. And pray that their desire to take part of this, even though they're living in sin for a season, pray that their desire to be a part would recognize I neither, either I've never accepted Jesus as my Savior and I need to come to Him now, or I'm the prodigal son, and I need to return. So Paul says that if you want to choose sin for a season, you want to live that life, brother, do so, but do, do not do it in his name. Don't drag Jesus' name in the mud like that. We're going to kick you out. We're not going to let you partake in communion because we don't want you to drink judgment on yourself. And we're going to pray for your soul that it'll either be saved or that you will return. That's the end goal of 1 Corinthians 5, 5, that they may be saved in the day of the Lord. I care more for their soul than I care how they feel about me right now. I'm thinking of their end. That's how every parent ought to be thinking when they instruct their children. And they're teaching them the way that they ought to go. They're very upset with me right now. No, no joke. They're sinners. Well, my child wants to, uh, yeah, toddlers want to touch a hot stove too. They want to run in the street. But eventually you say no, and you pull them back. Why do you do it? Because you're trying to think of their end. Why would you make them come to church? Because you're trying to think of their end. Paul's trying to do the same with the church. So you, you wonder, wonder, because he says, I hand them over to Satan, in verse 20, that they may learn not to blaspheme. I mean, this is one of the commands. Can't take God's name in vain. Can God save even a blasphemer? Look again back at verse 113, where Paul says, formerly I was a blasphemer. Paul knows God can do a work in these people. He knows things can be turned around. But he wants Timothy and the church at Ephesus to know they have no part in the assembly, in the church, in the body. They have no part right now. Treat them as unbelievers. Give them the gospel and love them. Give them the gospel and love them. We're going to cut them off from communion, treat them like they're unsaved, give them the gospel and love them. Keep telling them about Jesus, keep showing them Jesus. 
So what does all this mean for us today? What are we supposed to take away? First off, friend, let me ask you a question. Are you perfect? Are you perfect? Are you perfect in need of nothing? Category one or category two. Are you a sinner in need of a savior? It's one or the other. If you're here and you're a sinner in need of a savior, I don't care if you've been in church your entire life. I don't care if you've been in a Baptist church. I don't care what church you went to. We mentioned before, as somebody said, pastor said a long time ago, I don't know who it was, that right, pulling, walking into a garage does not make you a car. Walking into the church does not make you a Christian. You understand this? By you being here today does not mean you're saved. By you reading your Bible, reading the plan, does not mean you're saved. The Apostle Paul memorized, at minimum, the first five books of the Bible. And he was a blasphemer. And he was insolent. And he was unsaved. So just knowing of Jesus, right, even the demons believe and tremble. Has there ever been a point in time where you've accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? You've given him your life. And you recognize, I am yours, Savior. You are mine. If that's true, then your life is not your own. You've been bought with a price. So your goal there is to glorify God with your body and your soul, as 1 Corinthians tells us. Friend, look at me. Have you ever done that? So we went through last week in rapid fire. How do you do that? Do you admit that you, like I, are sinners? Do you believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God? He did come. He did die. He did rise. He did ascend on high. And he still lives today and intercedes on our behalf. You call on him. Whosoever calls on the name of the Lord, whoever prays on the name of the Lord, will be saved. Friend, I, I, I don't know how else to tell you or encourage you other than to talk about how great our God is and the grace and mercy he extends through the works. He loves you. He came into this world to save sinners. That's me. That's you. Will you trust him today? Will you give your life to him today? I beg that you will. If you'd like information on that, see myself, see Pastor Ethan on your way out. If you came with a Christian friend, talk to them about this. How can you know us? We'd be happy to share this good news with you. If you're here and you claim to be a Christian, let me ask you, first Christian, are you living with a good conscience? Are you living with a good conscience? Earlier we gave a definition of that. A good conscience is a state in which one's moral self-evaluation accurately, accurately registers that one has been obedient to God. Is that how you're living? Are you living with a good conscience towards God, towards man? Knowing you need to forgive, knowing you need to accept forgiveness from. There's nothing you need to make right. Didn't say live perfect. Have faith and be perfect. Have faith and a good conscience. Is that you? And you say, Pastor, it's going to be really hard because you don't know, or it's, it's really, it's so complex. My question for you, Christian, do you want to obey the Lord? Thumbs up.
something. Live with a good conscience. And you start. You got to start the process. Sure, it may be hard. But Jesus is worth it. He's worth it. Are you living with a good conscience? What do you need to make right? Secondly, does your life point others to believe in Jesus? Remember, Paul said that God saved him as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. Do others see the same pattern in you? People see you, how you work. People see you in your classroom. People see you in the city, in the community. They recognize this is somebody that's different. That's something I don't have. Do others, does your life point others to Jesus? Next, since you've come to Christ, how has your view of yourself changed? Have you noticed that there are sometimes where Christians, as they get older, some tend to get more self-righteous. You ever seen that? It's almost like these people become impenetrable. It's like just bouncing, exuding righteousness. You know why we do it? Because we do it right, because our family does it this way, and we do this, and we do this, and we do this. If you just did that, <laughs> come on, you'd be good too. How has your view of your life changed since you met Jesus? Let me walk you down a road of Paul's conversion. We read in Acts chapter 9. A couple years later, in 55 A.D., Listen to this progression for the Apostle Paul. 55 AD, 1 Corinthians 59, Paul says, I am least, least of the apostles. Five to seven years later, 60, 62 AD, in Ephesians 3, 8, Paul says, I am least of the saints. That's kind of a drop, Paul. And here in 62, 64, two to four years later, Paul says, I am chief of sinners. Well, Paul, you've known Jesus longer. Surely, there should be a little bit of, you know, chest out. and Look at all I've accomplished. Look at all the churches we got popping up left and right. Look what all we're doing. You're somebody. Least of the apostles. I'm somebody. Least of the saints. I'm not that great. Chief of sinners. A Christian that is accurately growing with God will see this same display in their own life. The closer you get to the light, the more darkness is exposed. And so when you see a 75 or 80-year-old person that is humble, that is not cantankerous, that is gracious and seasoned with salt, guess what you find? They understand what Paul wrote here. When you see somebody in their 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, and 80s, got their chest out, no problems in the world, no prayer requests to share. Our life's all great. They're still stuck at least of the apostles. Smidge of humility. 
but there's still something. I encourage you, Christian, embrace who you were before Jesus. Satan's right. You are a rotten, filthy sinner. He's right. But Jesus saves. And so we remember who we are. The more we dwell on who we are, the more we dwell on God's great grace and mercy, the more we ought to realize I am nobody. Not only am I nobody, I'm the worst. But God, who's rich in mercy, with great love and those who loved us. But God, this needs to be my progression, it needs to be yours. That our sin becomes so hideous because of his is so glorious. Our sin becomes so dark because his light is so bright. We walk around. God, thank you. God, thank you. We could say to the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be glory forever and ever. Amen. This is the song of the redeemed. Have you been redeemed? If you have, are you living with a good conscience? Does your life point others to Jesus? Has your attitude, your perspective about who you are changed? I hope so. If so, will you join me this week in verse 17 in praising our great God? Let's praise him with who we are. Let's praise him with how we live. And may the world look at us in wonder, not at how great we are, but how awesome our God is. Let's bow for a word of prayer. As we do, let's take 30 seconds, a minute, and let's just quiet our hearts and ask God, Lord, what would you have me do? We'll stand and sing our song of the month at the end of this. Friend, if you're here, again, you don't know Christ as Savior, I beg you, see myself, see a Christian friend you came with. We'd love to talk to you about that. Let's take 30 seconds, quiet our hearts, and ask Jesus, what would you have me do? What would you have me change? And then we'll pray. Jesus, we thank you for your sacrifice. Dying on the cross for our sins. Father, we thank you for sending in spirit. We thank you for working in our hearts, even today. In your word and your spirit, may you make new life. And for those that are here that don't know you, would you work in their hearts and bring them to you? Would you quicken them, make them alive? Or for us as Christians that are here, would you grant us, Lord, the day, today the ability to live with a good conscience in obedience to our Savior. That our life would be just a mirror of who you are and what you've done. Would you help us, Lord, to have the right perspective of our sin and your grace? And Lord, would you allow us today as we leave throughout this week to glorify you in everything we do and everything we say. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's stand and sing.